Welcome to COG, where we discuss current issues in women's health. This month, we're talking about evidence with Nancy Cheshire, the editor-in-chief of The Green Journal, about a range of issues from how to get published to what more can be done to reduce the stillbirth rate. My name is Rachel Nugent. I'm a staff specialist in ONG at the Sunshine Coast University Hospital in Queensland. You can get in touch with me at cogconversation at gmail.com or via our Facebook page or the website cog.podbean.com. We're available on iTunes and we'd love to hear your reviews. But before my chat with Dr. Cheshire, I'm joined for a quick rundown on evidence-based medicine with my co-host, Ted Weaver. Welcome, Ted. Hello. If we're talking about evidence-based medicine, then we need to remember the three precepts of evidence-based medicine, which are the best evidence, the experience of the practitioner, and the wishes of the patient. So if we drew a Venn diagram, then the bit that overlaps between the best evidence, the practitioner's expertise and experience, and what the patient wants is the sweet spot in evidence-based medicine. The other thing we need to be aware of with evidence-based medicine when we're looking at the best evidence is how generalizable that evidence is to our population. For instance, if we did a study in Scandinavia on the effects of solar um, radiation causing skin disease, how generalizable is that to tropical Queensland, where we have uh, in some ways a different patient demographic and certainly different levels of sun exposure compared to northern climes in Europe. So I think this is the thing that makes evidence-based medicine difficult, whereas people in some ways become obsessed with what's in print um, as being the only thing that should inform us about evidence-based medicine, forgetting the practitioner's individual experience and also the, the wishes of the patient, which may be quite different uh, depending on the patient and their particular circumstances. Well, there's evidence which informs us of outcomes, risk, uh, treatment, usefulness, but then there's the application of the evidence Mm. and the interpretation of those studies. And as you say, uh, you know, we look at things like internal validity, but also the external validity. How uh, applicable are the findings of a study to the population and the problem that that we're trying to solve. Yeah, I think that's really important. And, you know, we've seen the randomised controlled trial as the gold standard for evidence in medicine. And yet randomised controlled trials are very good when you're looking at a binary thing. Is it this or is it that? Whereas there are some studies which are impossible to do because it's going to be impossible to power them and to to do a randomised controlled trial. So we've got to look at other ways of being able to sift through evidence to get to a reasonable practice standard. And I think that's one of the jobs of print journals is to have experts in that who are able to look at studies, who understand the design of studies, who understand statistics, who understand validity, who understand applicability, who understand generalizability, and so on, and can publish things to further advance our knowledge. Now, um, I don't envy that a, a journal editor. There's lots of pressures on a journal editor, given the pressures that many practitioners in different parts of the world are under to publish Publish or perish. Publish or perish. I think it is a difficult job. And not for nothing has the Green Journal become the preeminent journal in our specialty. I think it's a fantastic resource. And that's, I guess, testimony to the quality of the editorial board of that journal. 
So this month on COG, uh, I know we promised to talk to Glenn Gardner and I still am uh, chasing down Glenn for a discussion around fetal growth and ultrasound. But in the meantime, I was very fortunate to attend the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology Congress in Austin, Texas. And so in the coming months, we have a series of interviews uh, on a range of different topics as a result of some conversations I had with some presenters at the conference. First up, we're talking to Nancy Cheshire, uh, who's the editor-in-chief of the Green Journal, about uh, evidence. Some other topics that we covered were pelvic pain, uh, genetics in ovarian and breast cancer, great sex. If there's such a thing. (laughs) (laughs) So they are are more gynecology-based topics. But I think it's important when trainees are going through that um, as part of their study for exams and as part of keeping up to date, generally people have been advised to look at the core journals, which traditionally have been the, the Green Journal, Obstetrics and Gynecology, the, the Blue Journal, the BJOG, the Grey Journal, which is the American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology, and the Red Journal, the Australian and New Zealand Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology. It's a rainbow. So it's a rainbow. Now, clearly there's lots of other journals, but it's, I would defy anyone if they read the four core journals, for them not to be pretty up-to-date and across the various issues that currently face our specialty. And that's why I was so excited to talk to Nancy, because this discussion around evidence really underpins what we do in ONG and also how our specialty is developing. Like, it's the cutting edge of mm. what is published in mm. those that rainbow family of medical journals mm. you just mentioned mm. uh, is what drives our specialty forward and what changes how we how we do things and how we look after women better. So I'm very excited to present Nancy today and I hope our listeners enjoy our conversation in obstetrics and gynecology. Today I'm at the American College for ONG Annual Scientific Meeting and I am very fortunate to have run into Dr Nancy Cheshire who is the editor-in-chief of the Green Journal. Uh, She regularly appears on the Green Journal podcast with Dr John Fisher to discuss recent editions of the journal. She's also an MFM with many peer-reviewed publications Uh, and first of all Dr Cheshire I have to say it's a glorious Texas day out there. It is gorgeous out there, isn't it? Yeah. The sunrise was just beautiful, and I didn't see a cloud in the sky when I walked over. Yeah. It was really pretty. It and was beautiful. about 70 degrees. You've been the editor-in-chief of the Green Journal since 2012. Well, it's interesting. I, was, um, I started in 2012 overlapping with the former group, Dr. Jim Scott, Dr. John Queenden, and Dr. Kathy Spong were the three sort of the triumvirate last time. And um, I did start with him and overlapped with him uh, myself for about six months to learn the ropes. And then in January 2013, my group, uh, at the time it was um, uh, Dwight Rouse for obstetrics and Bill Hurd for gynecology and I then overlapped for another six months so that the outgoing folks would get all of their papers through the cycle. We would start taking the new papers. So we actually formally started in July of 2013. And what's the usual tenure of It's um, the at the uh, pleasure of the executive vice president, um, and I'm the sixth editor ever. We're in our 66th edition, so the average would be a little over 10 years. The world is changing significantly, and print media across many applications is finding it difficult to survive. What do you think the place of a print journal is in today's world? When I first started this, I had the idea that we would be going entirely to online. 
fairly quickly, but when our publisher, which is uh, Walters Clore, runs the numbers, only about 40% of people would look online if they are subscribers. So if you're doing a lit search, you know, going to PubMed or, you know, whatever you go to, it, that's all going to be online now. But uh, for people who, who get a subscription and read it, most of them do it on paper. Right. Which shocks me. I was just totally amazed by that. And that hasn't really shifted over over the five years. How do you read journals? I am topic-based, and so I search. As Um, do I. Yep. I don't have a whole lot of time to sit and flip through a journal. I still am practicing medicine and still doing the editor work. So Yeah, right. So um, what's your – how much clinical work do you do now? Um, I see patients about three half days a week on average. Um, all on the uh, outpatient basis. My uh, area in maternal fetal medicine is uh, prenatal diagnosis and ultrasound. So I usually staff two or three prenatal diagnosis clinics, and then I staff a high-risk clinic, usually with the residents at the program at the University of North Carolina. So what advice do you have for clinicians wanting to get their work published in the Green Journal? Great question. Uh, First is to have a clinically oriented topic. The Green Journal, as our mission, is all around clinical work. So it's it's one of the things that we do get with electronic submissions. People just send submissions sometimes that are not appropriate for us. So we don't really publish basic science, for instance. As my predecessor said, we don't do rat studies. Mm-hmm. That's, there's great journals for doing that, but this is a clinical journal. Um, and um, the second one is to... Um, done high-quality research, so have planned a clear clinical question, um, used the appropriate methodology uh, to answer that question, and um, obviously get the patient numbers that you need to have enough power to answer the question, and then please write it up. I mean, that's one of the problems with researchers is they very often will um, do the work and then they never submit the paper, and, and that's, I think that is most unethical if they used live patients, uh, because those patients gave of their time, um, sometimes uh, incurred some potential risk, particularly if it's a randomized control trial. And um, I, I think there's an um, obligation to at least make an effort to get that kind of work published, published. or at least public. Yeah. Um, but um, And then keep, keep trying. I mean, the Green Journal... What's a- your rejection rate? Overall, it's about 85%. So very competitive. Uh, very competitive. And we desk reject or editorially reject without review about 25%. Many of them are these basic science papers that just inappropriate. aren't appropriate. Yeah. Um, some are things like surveys. We don't accept a survey with less than a 60% response rate because of the risk of bias with a low response rate. So those things get editorially rejected. Uh, right off. What's your advice for uh, new researchers um, who might have some gaps in their knowledge that they need to overcome, for example, statistical methodology? Yeah. Um, Research isn't a, a solo endeavor anymore. You have to have a team of people. And just like in any role, I would say being a researcher is a leadership role. You're, you've got a project and you're leading a project. You need to see where your gaps are and understand what they are and either the training to do that yourself, or more realistically, include people in your in your work that can fill that gap. Build a team. It seems to be a common theme of all the presentations I've attended here. Is yep. the involvement of the team yep. is what makes a difference to oh, to it makes good it, care. It, it makes a huge difference in taking care of patients and in doing research and in leading a department or 
something like that, you got to have the team. You have a really prominent role as a woman in power in the sphere of OBGYN today. How do you envisage your role to impact women's health both in the USA and globally? Yeah, uh, it's, a, it's a great question. And, and when I got this position, I had to grow into understanding what the span of potential impact was in this in this role. I understood it probably 50% and really had to come to understand it otherwise. I, I think the um, the role in the United States is that all OBGYNs get the journal. It's a um, high visibility journal. They trust us and I don't want to do anything that would dishonor that trust to um, publish high quality papers that have been appropriately and adequately peer reviewed and have been written in a way that is understandable to people who didn't do the research. And we look very hard to produce work that people can look at and go, oh, I could probably do that in my practice, or this doesn't apply to my practice, but I'll keep watching and see if other populations are looked at. So that's really important. As far as the global spam, global health has been a really important part of my practice since um, the mid-2000s. And I've really come to appreciate the fact that the Green Journal and ACOG is well-respected internationally. The journal um, publishers, actually, with pharmaceutical um, support and a local publisher, have a small version of the journal that publishes in six different countries. Um, All in English? Nope. Some of them are translated. They go to India, China, Argentina, Mexico, Japan, I think another one. Wow. can't remember it. That's quite a reach. Um, but yeah, it's a huge reach. And those uh, local publishers or editors can pick from whatever we have. And they're picking out of that the things that are most important to who they think their leadership is and that might impact their own country. And then this year, because of a grant with the American College of OBGYN, the Ethiopian Society of OBGYN through the Buffett Foundation, the... Um, Ethiopians identified as one of six major areas that they wanted to work on, um, having an improvement in the local research and and also in their um, journal. It's the Ethiopian Journal of Reproductive Medicine that is uh, 10 years old, and they really wanted to take that up a notch. It had been um, uh, not meeting the, the goals of the society, so mm-hmm. they, they wanted to change that. And we were invited, myself and Rebecca Benner, who is um, the editorial manager for the journal and has been for 16 years. You met her yesterday. I met yesterday, yep. It's a remarkable, very talented woman. Um, she and I and Bert Peterson from the um, GOAC, the um, Global OBGYN Committee of the College, to Ethiopia and worked with their uh, editorial team and their young OBGYNs. These people have 40 million people, I think. In Ethiopia, it might actually be bigger than that. And they had something like 110 OBGYNs in the country. And they are rapidly expanding their OBGYN training. And um, as many of them are here at this meeting. and uh, since, Yeah, I have run into a yeah, few Ethiopian yep, delegates. Yep. Um, and they've now published two two new um, editions of their of their journal. They have a third one in the wings. They've got a fourth one that will come out in the, in the uh, winter. And we were joking at one of the hotels here. I saw a group of them, and I said, look, you just needed a little activation energy, you know. And uh, we didn't. We just pushed a little yeah. bit, and then they took off. It was yeah. just been so much fun. So that kind of a ability to change things is really yeah. humbling and amazing. 
Yeah, and that idea of activation energy, I like that. I'm a, I was a chemist uh, oh, you? <laughs> in my undergrad days, uh-huh. and I really feel like that applies to a lot of research and what you're saying about leadership is mm-hmm. you just need some help to get over the yep. line sometimes, yeah, and then it's exactly. a downhill run. Exactly, exactly, if you've set it up right. The journal's done some significant work on quality and safety during your tenure. Mm-hmm. There must be some publications that you're proud to have facilitated. I've been very involved in uh, the quality and safety movement since uh, about 2005. And as I looked around and participated in some sessions at this meeting and the Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine meeting that is in uh, February every year, um, I realized there was not a place where safety papers could be published easily in OBGYN that any other OBGYN would ever read. There are certainly journals committed to that. to that. But unless you're a complete autodidact and all you do is read all day or you are searching for something specific, you'd never see it. And so about a year and a half ago, we um, met one of our yearly goals, which is to bring on a new feature every year. And that was a practice and quality feature. And uh, the goal for that was to have a place where articles about how do you practice medicine, uh, how do you run a clinic, how do you accomplished different things could be as well as a whole section on quality uh, using the Squire publication guidelines for how you do that. And I I was just amazed the first year we had 42 submissions, and this was an area that we'd never had before. We have been very privileged to be part of the uh, Partnership for Maternal Health, which is a group here in the States. ACOG is a major part of it, but it also includes anesthesia, family medicine, pediatrics, our nursing partners in uh, midwifery and OBGYN nursing. And they've produced a series of of maternal health bundles. And um, we've been the lead um, uh, publishers of those. And uh, these have been game changers for a lot of hospitals to really understand this is the kind of thing you've got to have in place to deal with a postpartum hemorrhage or a hypertensive emergency or a mm. variety of different things. So that brings me to uh, another question is we've really seen the rise of bundled initiatives. Um, and it seems to me like medical science used to focus on single variables and attempt to control for everything else as much as possible. But all of a sudden we're seeing a rise in these bundle initiative packages of care, post-op wound infection, perineal injury. There's a talk this week about preventing postpartum depression. Can you discuss that significant change in the scientific approach? I think there's, there's a couple of things driving this. One is looking at institutional responses to sort of a medical problem that consumes a lot of resources of one sort or another, and it's into the area of implementation science. I don't know if you're aware of that field. We just published two papers on implementation science last month by Bert Peterson and his colleagues at UNC. It's been really interesting that in lots and lots of settings, there's been huge trials looking at a single variable. Mm-hmm. Does mesoprostol given post-delivery decrease the risk of hemorrhage, for instance? Um, lots of papers on that, mm. uh, but not many papers on how do you actually provide a standard preventive uh, approach or if you get out of the prevention into the treatment approach so that everyone knows what they're supposed to do. Um, this this has sprung out of the lists that have been done, uh, the checklist movement. 
I'm not sure it has everything to do with the individual components. Uh, you can't dissect it out. And the pure scientist, it drives them nuts because of that. And I, and I get that. But at the end of the day, if you're going to save people's lives or morbidity with a set of interventions that in and of themselves many times have been tested in a, in a classic scientific manner and they've been shown to make a difference, I'm not sure it makes sense to withhold those things. Uh, we know that in manufacturing and in uh, flying, in many things in, in medicine, where you've got a team of people, everyone needs to know what their role is and what they do. And for instance, the bundles for postpartum hemorrhage, it's really clear vital signs need to be taken in a particular set of intervals got to have a mass transfusion protocol in place. If you bundle all of this and you teach it and you practice it, then when you run into those issues, it becomes automatic. I think the science that has to be done is how do you make those things stick? And then if you want to start doing like a diet where you take things out and see if it makes a difference or you add something back in and see if it makes a difference, that's fine. But in the meantime, why harm people? Yeah, it certainly seems to represent to me, a much more clinical approach. Like, that's how we practice right. medicine. And I really enjoy reading them, but I'm always, I am torn by that scientific rigor of mm. how do you know what it is? But I guess you're right. What's the point if the, the goal is to limit mortality and morbidity? Yep. And the interventions in these bundles, when you read them, are not expensive things to do most of the time. Mm, uh, I mean, yes, antibiotics are expensive if you're trying to reduce wound infection, but giving preoperative selectic antibiotics for cesarean section and hysterectomy have been clearly shown to reduce wound infections and, and surgical site infections. So you just include that in the bundle. If it's chlorhexidine wash, that's been studied, include that in the bundle. You know, And so you start adding these things in, and yes, there might be a secret sauce in there that somehow glues these all together that, that you can't understand, but um, some of it is just pragmatic. So you just mentioned prophylactic antibiotics at cesarean section, and in the May edition of the Green Journal, there's a paper by Skeeth, Ashley, a bunch of authors, uh, Aaron Corhey, mm -hmm. um, who we spoke to on COG about cesarean delivery mm -hmm. a couple of episodes ago. And the paper is adding azithromycin to cephalosporin for cesarean delivery infection prophylaxis, mm -hmm. a cost-effective analysis. So this paper describes the cost-effectiveness of adding azithromycin, and it's shown to be cost-effective when you consider treating the 700,000 seizures that are completed in the US. It's only in women who have ruptured membranes or uh, are in labour. On their analysis, 17 fewer cases of sepsis, 8 fewer cases of venous thromboembolism, 1 fewer maternal death with azithromycin cephalosporin. So it builds on the knowledge that we have about antibiotic prophylaxis and basically adds cost-effectiveness right. data to that. I'm wondering what the steps are from publishing a paper like this to then instituting change because obviously that's the goal. Right. Absolutely. And so, do you have a role in that process? I, I think we have a role in that publishing a cost-effective analysis isn't on its face a clinical, you know, it's an economic paper, right? But if you're the chief medical officer of a big healthcare system and you have 20,000 births in your system in a year, a dose of azithromycin adds up pretty quickly for 20,000 or 10,000 or however many cesarean births that you do. 
And you might need to be convinced that this is actually, uh, at the end of the day, cost savings. And so, again, going back to the evidence, there is always a trade-off between cost and risk and benefit. There, there, you're always kind of working in that area around clinical stuff. And so you have to start answering those questions. You also have to answer questions related to balancing measures. So what kind of allergic reaction rate do you get or people being harmed by this? And uh, all of that work has to go into place and become a public domain so that people can go to their chief medical officers, talk to their patients about why they're adding this drug, and explain what the benefits are and what the costs are. If we're not looking at value added by the care we do, then I think we're going to end up running down the rabbit hole of just doing or not doing things without asking ourselves if we're, at the end of the day, benefiting the patient. Publication bias, or the tendency to publish only studies that show significant findings, affect our interpretation of the literature. Absolutely. Studies showing significant results are three times more likely to be published than papers with null results. As the editor-in-chief of one of the world's leading journals in OBGYN, do you have a role in mitigating publication bias? Absolutely. One of the ways we do that, if you look at clinical trials, they need to be registered on a um, public accessible registry. And there's eight of them that the WHO has approved of. We typically in the states use clinicaltrials.gov, which is maintained by the FDA. Mm-hmm. And those trial registries are set up to at least begin to address part of their goal, this issue of publication bias. So the way that works is if someone has just done a clinical trial, which includes observational trials, it's not just randomized control trials, and then never get it written for either because they've put it in their drawer because it was a negative result or because the next big thing came along and they just didn't get around to it, someone should be able to go and find out who the PI was for that, Uh, be able to contact them, be able to see what the clinical question was, what their methods were, and ideally should be able to get their results because you're supposed to, within a year, put your data out there. That's not done a lot. But for systematic reviews, for instance, um, we require that they include in their search for resources clinicaltrials.gov because we want them to unearth these unpublished trials, uh, which will have as we just said, a high proportion of negative results. I think that's one way we address it. The other way is we have published uh, well-done negative trials. Now, what does that mean? It means they had the power to be able to say that it's a true negative. Our specialty's done a lot of work to redeem itself since Archie Cochran, the founder of the Cochran Collaboration, awarded us the, the wooden, wooden spoon, spoon. Mm-hmm. for evidence-based practice in 1979. But still research in OBGYN is hampered by a number of issues. There's limited replication of studies. We tend to take the results of one or two RCTs and often much less rigorous retrospective data and change practice as a mm-hmm. result of these In reality, even if a study shows a significant effect, if significance is calculated on a value of less than 0.05, then one in 20 times will be looking at a false effect, a statistical eventuality of using that p-value. So how can we improve the evidence base in ONG to make sure that our evidence is sound? Yep. So starting about three years ago, about 70 journals, editors, all signed on to support something called the CROWN Initiative, uh, which is an acronym for Core uh, Research Outcomes in Women's and Neonatal Health. 
Um, it's run mostly out of the, the UK, the offices in the UK, and uh, it ties in with their core core outcomes uh, work that's being done in the um, National Health Service there. Um, and the goal of that, and I strongly believe in this, is that if you're going to study, let's say, the prevention of preterm birth, um, you can whatever endpoints you want. It's fine. You, you do whatever endpoints you want. But in addition to those endpoints, endpoints, you need to report a commonly accepted group of outcomes that will allow your results to be bundled into systematic reviews in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, so that when you say, I'm preventing preterm birth, and you've used 37 weeks, and this trial over here used 34 weeks, and this one over here said, well, I'm really only interested in the 28-weekers and below. You can't pull those together. But if if you've done your 28-week paper, you still, in order to get published, in order to get funded, this is where we need to get to, in my opinion, you have to include these other things that everyone's going to include mm-hmm. and report them. And um, I think that's one way of preventing just what you're talking about. The other way is to collect data and know what your outcomes are when you've adopted something. Uh, In obstetrics, at least, it's a little bit harder because, at least in the States, we're moving more and more to a a shift in work. You tend to come in and you work a 12-hour shift in labor and delivery, and then you go. Um, And so if you start an induction on Mrs. Jones, who has three weeks and has a long, close, thick cervix and a previous cesarean section and she's got a BMI of 50 and you're, you didn't do any cervical ripening, your partner comes in and sections her later on, who gets the, the, outcome. the outcome, right? <laughs> I think that's something else as we embrace changes in clinical management that we need to come to a, a way of looking at those things and making sure we're not just grabbing onto the latest and greatest and, and um, forgetting some of the basics of, of what has been shown to, to work. I mean, we do laugh, sadly, on rounds that we sometimes are in a evidence-free zone. And I think that happens fairly regularly. Yeah, in LNG it LNG. does. Uh, I mean, sometimes you just have to say, well, this makes sense. Professor's evidence. Yes, which is flawed, mm. um, highly flawed. But it's often the best that yeah. we have. And sometimes it's just good judgment. Yeah. I mean, the BJOG uh, has recently published a paper, I'm not sure if you've seen it, about uh, venous thromboembolism prophylaxis, and it, it's basically a critique of the evidence on which we base mm-hmm. our practices. And they've been very aggressive in the UK of doing VTE prophylaxis. Yeah, and we have similar guidelines in Australia and at least a number of countries across the world. And it was an interesting paper to read because the evidence is weak mm-hmm. on which all of these things are based. Absolutely it is. Um, and and it's, a perf- it's a perfect thing for a large randomised control trial to right. actually see a risk... Benefit, mm-hmm. and you could you could do that. I mean, there's enough women getting. If you just focused on uh, obese women getting vaginal births or um, different groups of women undergoing cesarean sections, planned, unplanned, whatever. You could. There's a lot of deliveries in the world. Mm. This could be standardized, um, and it's something that we've um, actually had an editorial that my colleague Dr. Rouse wrote, um, arguing the same thing several years ago that. Uh, embracing putting everybody on a lot of heparin uh, or fractionated heparin um, it, it hasn't really looked at the risk of 
uh, intracranial hemorrhage very well, uh, or um, hematomas or those sorts of things. It's looked at VTE tension. It hasn't looked at those balancing um, mm. uh, factors to see what the risks are and the costs are terribly well. I mean, some of that work's been done, but not terribly well. Mm. So that's interesting because the UK has really led the way on a very aggressive heparin prophylaxis or vaccinated heparin. And many countries have followed yeah, suit. Well, because they've shown a significant decline in um, venous thromboembolism uh, mm-hmm. in the UK. But again, was that a bundle yeah. uh, or was that something else? <laughs> a recent Green Journal podcast, Commentaries Number 2, ah. discussed some changes to the American training program. Mm-hmm. And it was really interesting to listen to because I could see that your college is facing the same issues as ours in consistency of surgical training, the tension between subspecialization and generalist training. And I was actually kind of surprised that it was aired Mm. as part of the Green Journal podcast, Um, but I imagined that it was an audience accessibility factor. How do you envisage the role of the Green Journal for fashioning the training of tomorrow's OBGYNs? In this case, I think we are largely a pipeline. I don't see us as initiating training changes. It might be their training changes based on research that we publish. This will be the fourth year we've published seven or eight articles and most of the abstracts from a uh, medical education conference. We've done that as a supplement once a year to try to get medical education research available. It's a big space, medical education. It's a huge space. And unfortunately, education research in general is not very robust. And part of it is time and money and resources, but it's not terribly helpful or generalizable to take a residency training program that, say, has 28 residents in the four years, and you do an intervention, you you show the residents liked it. That's what a lot of the research yeah. is that we're seeing, and that's not really robust. I mean, does that intervention improve patient outcomes? Does it improve learning? Does it improve retention? Is a research project that's done in Chicago transferable or similar to a, a group of similarly experienced people in Australia, for instance? Mm. Is that something that, that could be generalized? So this particular intervention is something that the surgeons have, which is a very standardized OSCE type of assessment of basic laparoscopic skills. And um, I think we have a place, and one of the things that I've worked hard to do is to engage our trainees in the journal. And... Um, content for them, and this is where the online side of things can really expand, and John Fisher is our web editor. I've given him sort of a a free reign to develop some ideas and do some things. So he interviewed someone about the breast cancer risk with birth control pill paper that came out in the the New England Journal. That was the first one of these conversations. Mm -hmm. Well, it's not conversations. That would be copywriting for you, but (laughs) podcasts that he did without me. That's just been one topic. And this other one was with one of the uh, folks, uh, leaders at the American Board of Obstetrics and Gynecology, which looks at our training programs and um, trying to get that information out there so people know what's coming down the road. Mm. So we do have a role in that space, but as far as being leaders in that conversation, I'm not I'm not sure uh, you that role. You facilitate it more. Yep. You're an MFM. That's right. And I guess one of the big issues for... Uh, obstetrics is trying to reduce the stillbirth rate. What do you see as the major work that needs to be done in the, to actually bring the stillbirth rate down in the developed world? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, 
so the National Institutes of um, Health um, here in the United States had a, um, through the National Institute of Child uh, and Human Development branch, which funds most of the OBGYN federally funded work, um, as a stillbirth collaborative. Can't remember how many hospitals or healthcare systems are involved, but it, it's at least five or six. They had a very standardized um, workup, including uh, rental histories obstetric histories, a standardized set of evaluations when there's been a stillbirth um, that have been done, and they are now beginning to publish um, what turns out to be good evidence about the standard workup. Where does it make sense to figure out why it happened? That doesn't address planning it mm. unless you find something actionable. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's the focus of this is some of it's going to be esoteric um, things, but they're really... Uh, rolling out some of their actionable things. And I think embracing that is important. There are certainly stillbirths that happen that are going to be unpreventable. Mm. Um, And um, beyond that, I think we have to look at the very high-risk groups, the uh, moms who were over 40, um, women who um, are suffering with um, substance use disorders, smokers, those sorts of populations where the risk is high and work out how to work with those groups. But as far as a, I don't think we'll ever prevent all stillbirths. Mm. I, don't, I don't think that's possible. As tragic as it is, the woman comes in, ruptures membranes, and prolapses a cord. You know, unless you've let her go to 43 weeks, you can't prevent that. But I think embracing no an evidence-based approach to it. So when I started out in my practice, we, in training, people routinely went to 43 weeks. Mm. You know, and now we deliver at 41, or recommend delivery at 41, mm. to try to prevent that late stillbirth. And you can get crazy and say, well, I'm going to deliver everyone at 44 weeks, so no one abrupts. Kind of silly. Mm. You know? So again, it's going to be this trade-off back and forth is, whose risks are you going to talking about with the patient, and, and what's the right What's the right balance? Yeah. Mm. So my final question, Nancy, what is the biggest issue facing women's health that needs to be addressed in the next five years? I'm trying to answer this question in a way that focuses on big areas of morbidity and mortality for women. And I'm, I'm um, struck with two groups of things. One is obesity. It is a global problem. I was uh, years ago wrote a review article for the Green Journal uh, before I was the editor about the global burden of obesity in women, and it's vast majority mm. of cultures and countries are dealing with this. And so many morbidities and mortalities for women. We've had a big focus here at this meeting on women's heart health, diabetes, hypertension, all those things. I think that will be one area that if you could wave a magic wand, that would be a huge impact on women and their spouses and their men's health as, as well and children's health. Another area is safe motherhood issues. Women should not be uh, dying from preventable causes in childbirth and pregnancy and postpartum period. There are non-preventable things that happen. The last maternal death I saw was a woman who died of amniotic fluid embolism. Mm. Those are you know, not really preventable, probably, I, that we know of now. But the woman who emerges from a home birth in a rural area of... Sub-Saharan Africa, um, it, to me, is just a, a, a tragedy that's potentially, if we can figure out implementation science and educate people um, on 
simple home emergency obstetric care, I think we will make a difference in some of those things. Mm. Well, that's a perfect place to end because looking after women and children is the aim of the game. Absolutely. That's why we're all in this. Yeah. So thank you very much for joining me on COG. Yeah, Rachel, I've had a great time. Thank you. Thank you. That was Nancy Cheshire, Editor-in-Chief of The Green Journal. In lieu of Journal Club this month, I'll leave a link to the articles discussed with Nancy on our website, cog.podbean.com. So next month on COG, we'll talk pelvic pain. Uh, I talked with Dr. Sorsan Asani after the conference in Austin, and she is a leading researcher on pelvic pain and central sensitization syndrome. So it was enlightening talking to Dr. Asani, and I really look forward to presenting her work next month on COG. Chronic pelvic pain clearly is something that taxes us all. It's a really good example of a problem that's emerged in the last 20 years, It's a condition that really requires a skilled multidisciplinary team to best treat these patients. And I think that the uh, next podcast, we we would hope to to give you some ideas about how you could build such a service in your institution and how you can develop a systematic approach to dealing with these often complex and difficult patients. Until next time, thanks for joining us on COG. We'll see you next time.